Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hey, it's another day on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Glad you're with me today. I want to talk today about changes in mood. Uh, Last week, I had a conversation about how to read someone's pain, um, some of their energy, what if they are nonverbal, what if they are sick. But Today is completely different. Today we're going to talk about depression. We're going to talk about mood changes. I want to really dive deep into how alcohol or drug abuse can play in all of this. Um, People that feel so down that they feel suicidal. Um, Things like that. How do they – what do we do when they have that anger and irritability or – Anxiousness, nervousness, or they're just so restless you can't hardly deal with it. All those kinds of deals, you know? All right. So I would guess that about mm, 60, 70% of people that have some type of dementia disease get depressed. They're sad. They're down. They don't know why this happened to them. Is it... God getting back at them or something. I've heard all kinds of things. No, I don't think that's the case at all. But some people do. Some people have their faith completely shaken when they get a disease and they they don't understand why it's happening to them. And families, I think, rarely put themselves in the shoes of that person. I feel like I have said oh, multiple times over the last couple of months, um, if when you move somebody into a, a nursing home, a, a care community or what have you, um, people will say, well, they seem like they're really down or they seem like they're really sad. And I say, well, put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you moved from your home knowing you're never going back? Even if you are without mind, which is the Latin for dementia, you have to process all this. You're around people you don't know. You've moved into a new place. Just think what it would be like if you moved into a new apartment building or you moved away from your family and you're at a place where the doors are locked. You can't leave. If you're in a memory unit, You're there. You're secured. Tell me one reason why somebody wouldn't be depressed about that. Even if they don't remember family members, they're moving from a place they've probably been for decades. And if they have, being in a brand new place and meeting brand new faces, no matter how nice they are to you, takes a while for you to really even understand why you're there and who they are and where is your room and all those kinds of things. And even if you're not moving someplace, just getting a diagnosis that says you're going to lose your mind would be upsetting. It would make you sad. You'd have to be living under a rock not to understand what the connotation means around those words. You have Alzheimer's. You have Parkinson's. These are progressive diseases that change your world dramatically. And... If it happened to you, how would you feel? Would you want to go see a movie? Would you want to go out to dinner and be happy? Oh, hey, let's take a hike. No, you're going to sit down and you're going to 
maybe want to have an alcoholic beverage or five until you're numb and you can't feel it anymore. People will turn to alcohol a lot. I see this happen over and over uh, just to kind of deaden the pain or kill the, the anxiety to a degree. But guess what? Alcohol is a depressant. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. It isn't going to make the situation better long term. It might make it better for a couple of hours, but definitely not long term. And, you know, when you can treat the depression, the memory problems might improve. Even if the depression is caused by the dementia, if you can give somebody some medication that can take off the anxiety, that can kind of try to lift you up a little bit, it could help. But there's no doubt about it. If you've got an incurable disease, you're going to be depressed. You know, it, can, it would be logical to think that a person's depressed about a chronic illness. But not all people with Alzheimer's disease or other chronic illnesses are depressed. Some might not even be aware of the problem. By the time you get to a doctor, they may not even know what's going on. And, you know, it's, it's understandable for anybody to have a certain amount of discouragement about whatever their condition is. But getting deeply despondent over it or having it continue and continue and continue doesn't have to happen. You know, hey, like I said, fortunately, the kind of depression that goes with getting a, a really difficult diagnosis and prognosis usually will respond well to treatment. So think about that. Don't let your person wallow in the sadness. Just because they have an irrevocable and, and uh, irreversible dementia doesn't mean they have to be sad all the time. It doesn't mean that they have to struggle with it. You know, you can – the drugs that they give you for that – um, really do a good job in trying to lift you up a little bit, like Prozac and some other things. It just depends on, you know, what the doctor says might work. But it is important that you have a, phys a physician work with your person. Find out, you know, how deep is that depression and what exactly are they despondent over? Um is it the future? Is it day-to-day -day things? There's therapy that could help. I mean, there's just a lot of different things that you can do to treat the depression. The way you might recognize it is crying a lot, um, complaining of being really tired, changes in their sleep patterns, losing weight. Um, like I said, feeling like they did something bad and, and they're being punished or they're just really focusing on their health problems, um, that haven't, uh, been necessarily diagnosed by a doctor and they're just being really persistent about that. And they may not even know they're depressed. They might not use those words. One of the things you can do is make sure that you're taking them out and letting them be around other people. And even if they have memory problems, just keep them protected. Make sure that they're not on their own when they're talking to people. Um, put them in, in situations where they're going to be successful. Um, talk to them about, you know, positive things and, and don't give them, 
you know, conversation that they can't follow very well. And if somebody is talking to them and they ask them to repeat and that person gets says, I just told you or something, give them one of those things at the neck that kind of says, hey, chill out, knock it off. Keep them safe from the people that they're going to be around. Because even the smallest of failures, feeling like they didn't follow the conversation, they made somebody angry because they asked too many times, you know, them to repeat whatever they're saying, they're just going to get discouraged. You don't want that to happen. And when they're helping you at home, don't give them anything complicated to do, especially in the beginning when they've just gotten the diagnosis. Try to keep... Anything that you do as simple as you can, bill paying, setting the table for dinner, helping with a menu, um, you know, say say something like, gosh, a nice hot shower might make you feel better. Can I get it all set up for you? Can I run a bath for you? Do some simple things to keep their energy up, but not too much energy. If anything is too complicated, try to simplify it. And if they're out in a group of people, you know, you're out to dinner or something like that, um, and it upsets that person, try to say some kind of code. Like, let me know if you are feeling overwhelmed. Um Don't withdraw and get up and want to leave. Uh, Find one person at the table that you want to talk with. Let them know in advance. If we're going to go and have dinner with six or eight people, even if they're family members, who would you want to sit by that you feel safe with that's not going to question you or judge you or be mean to you if you ask the same question over and over and over? Ask friends to just come by one one at a time to visit. You know, tell your friends how you're feeling about being sad. What do you need? What can they do to help? Can they bring you a Starbucks? Can they just sit and talk with you and watch a movie? Can they go for a walk in the neighborhood? Can you go play tennis? Do you just want to talk? What's that look like? And if you can't talk to your friends, maybe talk to your clergy. Talk to your priest. If that doesn't work, try a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Find that person that you feel like you can communicate with on a level that is comfortable for you and that understands you and knows who you are and knows that you are not remembering some things. And it helps if they know a little bit about whatever disease you have. Um, If you have any information that you can share with them, maybe you could talk with them about this is what I read. This is something that might be happening to me. And please always be around for me. Please always talk with me and help me. Um, I need you to be there for me. You can say those kinds of things. I mean, if you had cancer or you had the flu or something like that, you would probably talk to people on a regular basis about it. It wouldn't be something difficult for you to talk about. But people who have a chronic illness, um, sometimes can talk about it to nauseam. And every time you see somebody, you're always talking about how sick you are and everything else. Well, guess what, folks? That makes you that much more ill. People who complain constantly about being ill always end up somehow being ill at some point in time. It just is the way it is. So when that happens, people overlook whatever your illness is. They're tired of talking to you about it. So if you've been that person, then maybe you need to say, hey, this time I really am sick 
I really do need help. I have some underlying problems. I know. I repeat myself all the time. I, I may be an emotionally unstable person, and I'm sorry about that. But now I'm not being a hypochondriac. Now I really have something wrong, and I need help. I need your help. I need you to be with me because people that get this diagnosis can get really unhappy, and they need appropriate care, and they need appropriate friends, and they need you to think these things through and not be afraid of them and not not want to be around them. So often they get isolated, really isolated. And when they are depressed and they are demoralized and they're discouraged, there's always going to be a chance that they'll harm themselves. We see this a lot with our military. They say something like every 22 seconds, somebody in the military kills themselves. Well, the, the rate of suicide among people with Alzheimer's and various dementias is very high. And it might be difficult for them to plan a suicide. You need to understand that there's a possibility that they may hurt themselves if they're depressed. If they have access to a knife or gun or power tools or medications or car keys, they might use them to end it. Always Always, always take any statements about, I don't want to be here anymore. Nobody will miss me, things like that. Take those statements seriously and notify a physician if somebody is talking like that. We need to address that. And there are ways that doctors... And their teams can try to help and give some medications or give some therapy or something to try to say, your life isn't over yet. For gosh sakes, you've got many good years in front of you. But you can't just make a depressed person happy by exercising or anything like that. Um, It gets into those deep recesses in their mind and you need a professional to help you through it. Don't. Don't leave that person to their own devices. And I'll tell you, over and over, I hear that alcohol or drug abuse skyrockets with people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. They'll use Valium, tranquilizers, things like that to try to block out those feelings, to try and numb that sadness that they're feeling. And all that does is compound the problem. It, it also takes away their ability to function. Their, their thought process will get a little bit more muddy. Um, their speech might be slurred. And it will definitely eat away at those brain cells that we need to help us complete a thought process. <laughs> Even if you've been a person that had a glass of wine for dinner or went and had, um, you know, margaritas with your Mexican food all the time and things like that, um, not that big of a deal. But people who are heavy drinkers who also have some kind of dementia can make the situation with your family nearly impossible to manage. And you might be more sensitive to smaller amounts of alcohol than somebody who doesn't have a dementia. And that just makes everything else huge. So even one drink or a beer, if you're an alcoholic and you have some type of dementia disease, 
you're going to reduce your ability to function. And you're not going to be able to tolerate the same amount of alcohol that you always used to handle. It's just not the same. And then suddenly you are not eating properly. You're, you're kind of malnourished. You're not drinking a lot of water. You're not hydrated. You get nasty, stubborn, hostile, wanting to go to the liquor store all the time. I see this month in and month out with my clients. Get the alcohol out of the house. Try to help that person dry out. It doesn't help when the brain is impaired and that person is drinking because all it does is cause behaviors and then you have to find a way to control that behavior. You might have to do what I said, get the alcohol out. Sometimes you do it quietly, sometimes you do it loudly, but whatever you do, do it firmly. And if they're being nasty to you, if they're being rude to you when they're, when they're drinking, you have to understand that the disease process itself is going to cause them to behave in ways and say things to you that just are not socially acceptable and sometimes hurtful. And I tell you all the time that you have to not take this personally. But then when you add alcohol, all you've done is exasperate the problem and make it so that they really behave badly. They're falling. They're hurting themselves. They're, they're speaking to you in, in inappropriate way and and using language that you don't like and and all those kinds of things. So just get rid of it. You don't need those extra problems. Because again, alcohol is a depressant. And you're just going to make it worse if you continue to try to self-medicate and numb that pain in that way. That's not going to help them. It's not going to help you. So just think about that. Other things that can happen, especially if they're drinking or using other um, whatever they want, medications, whatever it is that they feel like is going to help them feel better, it sometimes translates into apathy, not caring how you feel, not being interested in doing anything. They don't want to go out of the house. They don't want to do an activity. They don't want to help you with dinner. They just sit and do nothing. And I guess they think it will be easier I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's easier. But maybe they just think if they just sit there and don't do anything, nobody will bother them, that they'll just overlook them. Um, but you know what? The listlessness, the not wanting to do anything is probably the effects of the disease and how it's affecting the brain, the front, frontal lobe especially. And that's why it's important to keep that person as active as you possibly can throughout the day. Get their mindset so that they're, they're feeling good about themselves. You're trying to see what they can still do and not what they're losing. And don't let them withdraw because if they withdraw, that's their way of coping. And when that happens, things get really complicated. And if you have to insist that they participate, you're going to get some kind of a reaction you don't want. <laughs> so the more you can keep open lines of communication with that person and have them do activities throughout the day that are meaningful to them, walk the dog, work on some art, read, um, watch their favorite movie, listen to a podcast, whatever it is, 
you keep them busy, it might cheer them up a little bit. It might keep them active and, and engaged and, and doing something that's going to make a difference and it'll make them a lot less apathetic. Even if they're just peeling potatoes for you or, you know, maybe they just do one today, they feel good about doing another one two tomorrow or whatever it is. Have them out in the garden with you. Get them moving. Give them simple tasks. Tell them how good you think they're doing. If they stop in the middle of a task, don't urge them to go on. Just say, hey, you did a really good job on that. Give them a compliment. Talk them through what they're, what they're doing and say, I'm really proud of you. You're really working hard on this. If they seem to get agitated, give them a different job to do or say, let's take a little break and have a cup of, you know, a glass of cold iced tea or something, you know. You have to weigh the importance of that person doing that job the way you want them to or doing that job so that they feel fulfilled and they feel valuable and they feel good about themselves. When they get a diagnosis, they start immediately noticing all the things they're doing wrong and then get super worried that you're not going to like the way they do things anymore. We as our caregiver nation have to find a way to communicate with them that they're still important to us and we're glad they're still engaged with us and we want them to do activities with us and we won't be judgmental. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about feelings around all this. How do people feel and how do we address it? Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Right. So I'm talking about depression, what adds to it, what makes it worse when somebody has a dementia disease. And I always believe they will feed off of your energy. So I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the fact that A person with any of these types of dementias will remember their feeling about whatever a situation was longer than they remember what caused the situation. So when I'm training family members and professionals, I always say, address what that person is showing in terms of emotion, not what happened, okay? Oh, they're crying because they tripped and fell and bumped their knee. Uh, As an example. So instead of rehashing how they tripped over something that maybe they should have moved that box or you've been trying to tell them to, to clear that path for a long time, say, oh my gosh, that looks like it hurt. 
Are you feeling any pain? What can I get you that will make you feel better? Can I get you up off the floor and sit you down in the chair? Um, It doesn't look like it's too bad. Are you feeling a little better? So we're addressing the emotions. I'll give you another example. They're missing somebody who's not around. Maybe they're just not around for the day. Maybe they passed away and they're gone. Um, And they wish that person was there or they don't know why that person is there, is not there. We could look at this situation and say, oh, that person died 10 years ago or so-and-so just can't come today. I'm sorry. I'll see if they can come next week or what have you. Tell me why you need them here today. Are you feeling sad? Are they a person you feel like you can talk to about this and they will understand? Are they compassionate with you when you're talking to them? Do they make you feel safe and secure? Tell me what you loved about that person. Did you like the way... You danced with them. Did you like the way they held your hand when you went on walks? What was your favorite thing about that person? Was it their smile? Was it, you know, your early memories of how you first met? Talk about the feelings and the emotion as opposed to they're missing someone and they don't feel safe. Or they're feeling anxiety and they want somebody there. In the same breath, we have lots of people who are very suspicious. I'm, you're trying to take my money. You're deliberately not feeding me. You're being mean to me. You're stealing things from me. And families wonder why they're saying things like this. Well, the truth of the matter is that the brain processes and stores that memory, all those older memories, and even the ones coming in, in the back of the brain, in the occipital lobe. And it stores feelings in a different way than it stores facts. I don't understand why. I don't know why, but it just does. Okay? And emotional memories seem to be, I guess I would say, less vulnerable to that person being devastated than a fact. Um... As an example, if somebody was mean to you or they they treated you like you were, you know, not good enough or something like that, um, and maybe there's something specific. They said mean things to you. They called you names. They degraded you. Um, chances are the facts of what that, that person said might not be stored in the memory as well as the way they made you feel. So when I see someone who feels like they're not being listened to by their family, um, they feel like people in care communities don't like them, they feel like their family members don't like them, things like that, they harness that suspicion and that angst of that person not liking them more than the actual reason that that person upset them. That's why it's important to deal with the emotional impact that person has on them than the actual situation, the sadness, their crying, their good feelings, um, things like that. They'll remember those much longer than they will the facts of why someone made them happy or sad. 
I hope that makes some sense to you. I really do, because I've talked about this so many times. But if you're listening to the show for the first time, which some of you might be, I get new listeners every day, it, you, you need to understand the minute you walk into a room, your energy transfers to that person. They can become happy. They can become anxious, sad, distraught based on your energy. And boy, that negative energy really kicks in. They can pick that up in a New York minute. And guess what? They become angry. They lash out at you. They lash out at everyone. What you reap, you will sow. So if you walk into a room with somebody and you're in a bad mood and you're you're intense and all of that, they're probably going to be angry. They might slam things around you. They might hit you. They might throw food or spit at you or make accusations about how mean you're being to them. And, of course, you're upset by that, right? And not even realizing that you brought that into the house. Oh, and it can translate into so many levels and so many areas of hostility that they'll aim at you. <laughs> and then you have, you know, the, you spend the rest of the day giving your best effort to take care of that person and try to make them feel better, but they're still stuck on that energy that you walked in with. You reap what you sow, my friends. You do. Please listen to me. They hold the feeling longer than the facts. Please write that down. Listen to me about that because <laughs> we oftentimes as caregivers, my caregiver nation, all of you, I love you. I'm not trying to beat you up today, but we, we create so many of the symptoms that we complain about later. And I'm telling you right now, when somebody is angry or they are violent, it can turn into a catastrophic situation that you may not be able to handle. If it does, you have to remember to try to respond calmly. Don't respond with anger. If you can remove the person from the situation or whatever the whatever the stimulus is that has upset them in any way, shape, or form, get it out of the room, turn the TV off. Oh, for gosh sakes, leave the TV off. Right now, I would guess 90% of the bad energy people pick up day in and day out is from watching the news. Every time you turn the news on, we're seeing something about Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing a plane go straight into the ground in China. I mean, it just goes on and on, right? Turn the TV off. They might not even be angry at you. They're just confused and they've been engaged in something that is firing them up and they're misdirecting their anger at you. And it's probably some misunderstanding. You know, it could be something really, really simple. But most times, it's something that you could have avoided. Leave that TV off. Don't go there. Don't. They will feel that energy and then not know what to do with it. And guess what? If you're the one standing there, it's going to be aimed right at you. Put on Hallmark. Even breakups on Hallmark are lovely. <laughs> Nobody's ever mad. Honey, I'm not going to marry you. I'm in love with my high school boyfriend who has just reappeared at my tree farm. Yeah, and, and the guy always looks at him and says, Oh, that's fine. We'll just go our different directions. There's so much love and ridiculous serendipity in Hallmark shows it can make you want to throw up. But I would rather watch that than World News Tonight with David Muir, as cute as he is, 
and listen to all the sad, terrible things that are going on in the world. Your person with whatever dementia they have does not need that. All they get is worried. They get anxious. They're upset. They're agitated. They're pacing. They're driving you nuts. They suddenly become restless. And guess what happens? They get on your nerves. As they're doing all that, you're trying to figure out a way to stop it. Oh, you're thinking to yourself, note to self, I'm going to call the doctor and get a drug for this. (laughs) Know that your input into their daily engagement causes 100% of the reaction that you get. People with Alzheimer's especially and Parkinson's will act They will react on your action. And a lot of times there's changes in the brain that are going on, and that could be the cause of anxiety and and nervousness. You know, they have real feelings of what they've lost. They have real feelings of tension of losing their independence. They have real feelings about not knowing where they are or where someone is that they want or what someone expects them to do. They don't know where their possessions are anymore. They're worried about losing them. They have anxiety about somebody coming in and taking something because they can't remember where they set their ring. So if somebody comes into my house, they're going to steal them. They're worried about doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing, messing up. They want their old, familiar environment. I want to go home. I'm worrying about somebody from my past. Where are my kids? All that stuff creates anxiety and nervousness and just eats away at their peace of mind. And what you can do is just provide as much reassurance as you can. I'm here to help you. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to leave you. Let me give you a hug. Show some affection. However you can redirect them and and distract them, do everything you can. Because I'm going to tell you, medication will only help once in a while. It's not going to be your go-to. You can't snow somebody. We're not allowed to do that. You can't just give them drugs so they can't feel anything. I promise you that makes life a thousand times worse. Then they get incontinent. Then you've got to be changing them. You've got to be cleaning them up. Then they're going to have falls, all those kinds of things. So get that out of your head right now. Drugs are not the way to do it. That's not the way to make them better. If you can help with a little bit of depression medication, yes. But but in general, you need to figure out some ways to work with them, to communicate with them, to keep them engaged and be sensitive to their moods. And if you have a household that is full of tension, and no matter how hard you try to conceal it, that person is going to respond to it. I guarantee it. If somebody's fussing over something minor, you're going to make it a bigger issue with your person with dementia. You are. It's going to be dreadful. It's going to end up in contention. It's going to end up in them accusing you of something. And don't yell at a person if they get confused and they cry. They might be crying for no reason. Don't don't say, why are you crying? Stop crying. It could be because they can feel that energy that something bad is going to happen. Somebody's going to get into a fight. Somebody's going to slam a door. Somebody's going to be mean to them. That's a real feeling. And that's a real response to the mood in the house. Don't don't create something that you don't want to happen. Know and own the responsibility that if you are increasing tension in the house, if you are being a smart aleck to someone, if you are arguing with someone, if you are judging them and being just a jerk, 
you're going to get that back tenfold and you're going to get it for five hours straight. And do me a favor, don't call me and ask me for help. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You can always call and ask me for help and then I'll tell you the same thing I just said. Stop doing that. If you're making your person sad and worried, if you're making your person anxious, stop. Try to create a nice atmosphere, nice music in the house. Um, Open the windows, let the sun shine in. Talk to a person and say, hey, I know you're losing your memory, but that's okay. I'll help you with anything that you feel like you're losing. If you feel like you're losing time, I'll try and bring it back to you. I'll walk you down memory lane. If you feel like you're losing something in the house, I'll try to keep track of it for you. Respond with affection. Respond with love. They'll feel that. That's real. Don't try and convince them that you're just trying to be helpful. Be helpful. Really work on it. Really try. I'm telling you, you might be offended when I say this, but there are a lot, a lot, a lot of unstable people walking around in this world. And for the most part, they are emotionally unstable. They say the same things over and over and over again, looking for validation. They may be toxic to the people around them and don't even know it. They talk in a in a tone that is accusatory and pointed and unkind to people and wonder why they people don't like them. <laughs> Think these things through, people. If you are a person that is really intense and is always picking fights with people and you have a lot of dysfunctional relationships, ask yourself why. It might be you. And if you're working with a person that has Alzheimer's and you're doing things that trouble them or argue with them, if you're saying there's no reason to get upset about that, well, you just gave them one more reason to be upset. And not all anxiety and anger go away so easily. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. Sometimes these feelings stay around for hours on end. And then all you can do is try to offer them some kind of comfort, some kind of, you know, change of environment, trying to counteract whatever effect on their brain you just created. And when when they are nervous and they're upset and you can't get them off of that, they'll fiddle with things. They'll tell you to get away from them. They'll resist care. They'll shove things around on a table. Um, they might try and get out the front door or away from wherever they are. Um, they might do something that doesn't seem normal, that's really inexplicable, like turning on um, all the water faucets or turning on the stove. Um, they just feel like you're making them nervous and now they're restless, now they're irritable. And now you're trying to figure out how you're going to manage this. And when they get agitated, you're in trouble. It could just be restlessness. It could just be that they're just flat bored. Sometimes medication can make people restless, getting up and down, up and down, up and down, pacing and things like that. Again, try and be calm. Try and be gentle. Simplify what's going on in the in the surroundings. See what the stimulus is that's making them overloaded. Do what you can. And if you can, if they are super restless, just give them something to fiddle with. Give them one of those squeeze balls that they can play with. Give them 
a ball that they can move from hand to hand. Give them some, uh, maybe like a whole box of paper clips that they can sort. Uh, things like that. Walk them to the mailbox to get the mail. Um, take them in the kitchen and get them a decaffeinated coffee if it's late in the evening or something like that. Um, try and find a way that you can redirect and try to help them to find that place of peace. But remember, watch your language, watch your energy, watch all of that emotional junk that you bring into the house. Because I'm telling you, once it's catastrophic, it continues to be catastrophic and it can be more and more difficult to work with. So figure out ways to reduce that confusion. Get rid of that stimulation. Get rid of the noise. Do whatever you have to do to change that energy around that confused person and do what you can to change you. Because chances are if somebody is angry, if they are upset, it was your energy or someone's energy in the house, the TV, whatever it was, that is causing it. Medication won't fix it. Better communication skills and everything I've talked about today will try to help you minimize all of that. Okay? I hope this has been helpful. It's a deep conversation. I'm not trying to make you as my caregiver nation feel bad about yourself. You're all doing a great job out there. But so I talked to somebody today that their energy was so intense and so accusatory and so negative and they couldn't figure out why their person with the disease was crying all the time. You know, I get so much content from my clients. It's unbelievable. I could do shows for the next 20 years and never run out of content. Seriously. God bless y'all. I hope you have a good week. And I will see you next time on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.